Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey, don't forget to check out the Pacific War Podcast week by week in association with Kings and Generals. Hey, and don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button so I can feed my two feathery co-hosts. To see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War, 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. Today, we are going to be speaking about one of the most important events in modern Chinese history, the May 4th Movement of 1919. And please, do not forget to like and subscribe, as it feeds these two demon birds who need their seeds. Isn't that right, Charlotte? As we had seen in my previous episode on the Xihai Revolution and on the series on World War I in Asia, China underwent one of its most tumultuous periods in its entire history. This created the Xin Wenhui Yudong, New Cultural Movement in 1915, and the Wu Suyu Yundong, May 4th Movement of 1919, changing China forever. China had been undergoing what is called the Century of Humiliation. Ever since the Opium Wars and countless other slights, the people of China were dissatisfied, to say the least. A report this week, which was referenced, does indicate that your company has a bank account in China. I mean, I was a businessman doing business. The Qing Dynasty was overthrown during the Xinhai Revolution of 1911, ushering in the New Republic of China. But good old Yuan Shikai quickly wrestled control of the movement created by Dr. Sun Yat-sen and seized the presidency of the new republic and eventually elected himself emperor over the new Hongxian dynasty. To make matters even worse, during all of this, World War I kicked off and with it, another dose of humiliation from external actors. Japan joined World War I and laid siege to the German concession in Shandong province, Tsingtao. After defeating the Germans, the Japanese began occupying the province much to the disdain of the Chinese people. Then to make matters worse, Japan presented China with the infamous 21 demands. Yuan Shukai had spent his time in power propping up military governors all over China, and he found himself unable to sign the 21 demands as he was competing with these very warlords for control over China. He could not afford a war with Japan at the same time. Then, the guy dies in 1916, leading China to fall into what is known as the Warlord Era. Thanks, Yuan Shikai. His predecessor, Premier Dan Xie, faced quite a conundrum. The Chinese people wanted the Japanese to leave. And the Japanese were trying to score a deal with the Entente powers to keep the territory after World War I had concluded. America, looking to mess with the Japanese, advised China to enter World War I on the side of the Entente powers to try and get a chance at the peace table, and perhaps wrestle back the occupied territory and end the humiliating extraterritoriality that most of the great powers still held over it. The Chinese government took this advice, but wanted to hedge their bets so in 1918, a secret agreement called the Sino-Japanese Joint Defense Agreement was formed. Which was one of the worst things that ever happened. It is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere. 
Basically, Japan wanted China to allow it to move military forces in China to thwart a possible German or Bolshevik-led offensive along the Manchurian borders. Japan threatened to stop providing financial aid to China, forcing them to play ball. Unfortunately, the Chinese news press caught wind of all of this and leaked it to the public, who were outraged. During World War I, China sent hundreds of thousands of laborers to help France, Britain, and Russia, and they were given two seats at the Paris Peace Conference. Things were looking good, and the Chinese delegation presented their demands. They proposed the internationalization of the Manchurian railways and rivers, the elimination of legation guards, getting rid of foreign troops stationed in China, the abolition of extraterritorial rights, recognition of China's sovereignty over tariffs and railways, and above all else, the return of Shandong province. The great powers said, No. You serious? No, and ignore the delegation for the rest of the conference. Yes, it turns out the Entente powers had promised Japan, Shandong province, in return for their help during the war. The Chinese public was livid upon hearing the news of what had just occurred. Now going back a bit to 1915, ever since the Japanese began encroaching in Shandong province, young Chinese intellectuals began demanding reforms. A lot of them were inspired by a monthly magazine called Xingxingyan, The New Youth, written by the Dean of Peking University, Chen Zhuxiu, who advocated for a vast intellectual, literary, and cultural revolution to rejuvenate China. This all became known as the Xinwenhuai Yudong New Cultural Movement. The movement attacked traditional Confucian ideas on the basis they reinforced outdated social values like hierarchy, paternalism, obedience, and unquestioning respect. Instead, the movement promoted Western ideas such as democracy, science, republicanism, self-determination, equality, and individual liberties. They argued China could not be democratic while political authority was reinforced by Confucian teachings, which blocked progress. They also argued that Confucian patriarchal family structures impeded individual freedoms and the rights of women. They proposed a new naturalistic vernacular writing style, Bai Hua replacing the difficult 2,000-year-old classical style of Wei Yan. In a nutshell, they wanted more democratic and egalitarian values, and above all else, they wanted to orient the nation towards the future rather than the past. The movement coincided with the public outrage that had been brewing over the years, and the treatment of China during the Treaty of Versailles was the straw that broke the camel's back. At 1.30pm on Sunday of May the 4th of 1919, more than 3,000 students from 13 different colleges in Beijing held a mass demonstration against the decision of the Paris Peace Conference at Tiananmen Square. They demanded the Chinese legation not sign the treaty and drafted five resolutions to oppose the granting of Shandong province to the Japanese under former German concessions, to draw and increase awareness of China's precarious position to the masses in China, to recommend a large-scale gathering in Beijing, to promote the creation of a Beijing Student Union, and to hold a demonstration that afternoon in protest to the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. 
the Chinese government chose to acquiesce to the decision of the Paris Peace Conference, further infuriating the students who marched from Tiananmen Square to the Legation Corridor. They shouted slogans such as, struggle for the sovereignty externally, get rid of the national traitors at home, do away with the 21 demands, don't sign the treaty. The protesters called for a boycott of Japanese products and demanded the resignation of three Chinese officials accused of collaborating with the Japanese. Things got violent as they began to burn down the residences of those officials, such as the house of the Minister of Communications. They also assaulted China's minister to Japan. The police attacked the protesters and arrested 32 students. Word spread across China, and over the following weeks, the demonstrations spread across the country. Several students were killed and wounded. More than a thousand would be arrested. In large cities around China, strikes and boycotts against Japanese products would last over two months. Then on June the 5th, the working class began to join the demonstrations, particularly in Shanghai where 100,000 industrial workers performed a week-long general strike, angry at how the government had suppressed the students in Beijing. To add to the grievances of the students, the workers added their own demands, higher wages, better conditions, and an end to the exploitation. What had started as a student demonstration had expanded into a national movement involving students, organized labor, and political groups. This pressured the government to dismiss the three pro-Japanese officials, sack several key ministers collapsing the cabinet, and instruct the delegation in Europe not to sign the Treaty of Versailles. As part of the movement, hundreds of publications began to spread the new thought, and this led to the decline of traditional ethics and the family system. Emancipation for women gathered steam, a vernacular literature emerged, and political developments also began to spread. The May 4th movement achieved many of its objectives, though Shandong province would only be handed back over to China later on in 1922. Before the movement, many Chinese reformists placed their faith in Western models of government and the promises of Western leaders that China would gain independence and self-determination. But these promises and that faith were broken at Paris. The Treaty of Versailles demonstrated to China that they could not wait for Western nations to guide them into modernity. China would be responsible for its own fate, and thus a divergence began. What would occur was the birth of communism in China and the resurrection of the Kuomintang nationalists. You see, when China sent laborers to Russia during the Great War, Many of them became enthralled in the Bolshevik-led revolution. Many of those Chinese who came back home brought with them the Bolshevik ideology. Chen Jixiu became the dean of Peking University in 1917, and a Marxist study group led by Li Dajiao attracted his attention in 1919. Chen Jixiu would go on during the May 4th movement to publish a special edition of the New Youth on Marxism with Li Daijiao as his general editor, providing the most detailed analysis of Marxism at that point published in China. Amongst many, Mao Zedong would become influenced by all of this. Chen Jixiu and Li Daijiao would found the CCP 
in the French concession of Shanghai in 1921, and Mao Zedong likewise formed his own branch in Changsha. The May 4th movement likewise resurrected the exiled Kuomintang on October the 10th of 1919, led again by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. In 1920, the Kuomintang set up a government in Guangzhou, but failed to achieve full control over all of China. They held a strong opposition to certain aspects of the May 4th Revolution, because from their perspective, the movement destroyed some positive elements of Chinese tradition and placed too heavy an emphasis on direct political actions and radicalism. And so the board was set for China during the 1920s. The country was fractured into warlord states, and now differing groups would fight for control over the nation to direct its future. Hold on to your butts, because the warlord era is here, and soon I will be creating a multi-part series on the wars to unify China. Alright, so let's just summarize everything we have now just learnt. China had been humiliated and abused during World War I by the great powers and the Empire of Japan. Students began the May 4th movement to protest their government's weak response to the Treaty of Versailles and usher in some reforms. The movement grew to include the working class, ushering in the birth of the CCP and the resurrection of the KMT. Now China would be fought over by the warlords. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and please do not forget to hit that like and subscribe button as it means a lot to this small channel. And as you can see, it feeds much needed seeds to these two demon birds. Isn't that right, Charlotte? This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out. To see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Hey, and don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button so I can feed my two feathery co-hosts. Hello there, welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945, and all the major events that led up to it. Today, I am here with my fellow co-host, Justin. What's up, ladies and gents? It's been a while. Good to see everybody. Welcome yet again. Julian! I don't know where I felt like I get a little drink around. Here, do you, bud? Always a pleasure. We are talking about what is quite honestly the most important event in modern Chinese history. The May 4th Movement of 1919. Yep. Which ironically enough was really good to pitch on May 4th because of Star Wars Day. <sighs> yep. It did a lot for the algorithm, I'll say that much. <laughs> Especially with a Star Wars thing coming out. Yeah. Are we excited? I'm excited. We haven't seen the first two episodes over. No, I have not yet. I'm... Uh... I, I, I hate those cliffhangers, man. I gotta wait and binge a good chunk of it at once. Otherwise, I'm gonna be very upset. I mean, anyone watching this, if you also watch the Wizards and Warriors channel, uh, it was me doing that long format video essay, which was an hour-long video, which uh, we were pretty scared about doing. Uh, it's uncharted water, and it's it's hard to pitch long-form content, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I was tortured recording that one, and I it took me a long time to write that script, so... It is what it is. I'm not watching it, and I'm telling you now, if you spoil anything, I will hurt you. Oh, there's so. lots of spoil. Yeah, exactly. So, 
So, so. Um, for those who aren't used to uh, these older podcasts that we've been doing for quite a long time, because I think there's been a few uh, podcasts uh, for the Pacific War that are just general subjects, it's been a while since we've done an episode review one. Yeah, it's been a little bit. We've been busy, but... Uh... Yeah. What usually happens is I have my guest, Justin, just go through, you know, what he liked, what he didn't like, what he learned from the episode... Followed by a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the episode, because as you can imagine, I write a ton and it can't make it into the cut, because the episode, I think, was like 14 minutes or something. Yeah, it wasn't a very long one, which uh, I am glad you brought those times down. It's easier for those of us with short attention spans. Intentional, because a lot of people were saying they're too long, these episodes, and let's let's be honest on YouTube, uh, the shorter the better. I have a very short attention span. But our point is very simple. You see when... Oh, look, a bird! <laughs> To, to be honest yep and uh, at the end i answer audience questions or just weird comments i get on the episode itself those are always fun nice. yeah well i mean this was definitely uh, was an interesting episode and even those who don't study history might have heard of this incident or might have heard of Tiananmen square or things like that sorry if i'm pronouncing things wrong I'm... Tiananmen. didn't happen i don't know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> i'm not going there but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a well-known topic that most history classes will glaze over. Mm -hmm. Well, Western history classes, sorry. If you're in China, this is the most significant part of modern Chinese history as far as they're concerned. Well, that's probably why we touch on it in Western history. But we don't really go into details. And I definitely learned a few things as to how this mm -hmm. was... Well, I mean, going through other episodes, if you're a long-time viewer, we, we've gone through a lot of the, the struggles that China went through during mm -hmm. the Hundred Years' Humiliation, or whatever other names it has. But uh, this was really a key point, kind of in the morphing of Chinese modern culture, we yeah. should say. So, uh, why don't you bring us through a little bit about what happened, and then uh, I'll probably pop in a few questions, or I think we might have had some audience questions, too. We'll there we go. Well, the, the start of the episode is actually kind of just a summary of all the horrible things that happened to China in the 19th and early 20th, the, yeah, 19th and early 20th century, I had a brain freeze there. So, you know, you have the uh, the two opium wars, Taiping Rebellion, Boxer Rebellion, uh, the Xinhai Revolution, which is kind of coinciding with uh, World War One, and World War One is kind of like the pincushion that's really breaking the camel's back at this point. So this event in question is occurring during uh, World War One, and uh, if you want to know more about what happened to China during World War One, I, I have a previous episode, you can click on a, probably a link I'll put up here. It'll give you more background information, but all you need to know is China did not actually go into World War One as a combatant early on. Eventually, they do declare war on Germany because they're pushed by uh, the United States. Yeah, and this was basically... Uh... From what you said in the episode and what we talked about beforehand there, the, the U.S. basically dangled a big carrot in front of China and said, here, go get him. Yeah. And then as soon as China declared war, the, the powers basically said, no, we're not giving you what you want and sort of... But it's, I'm uh, going to go ahead and say China kind of got fucked on this one. Oh, yeah. Big uh, time. Uh, big time. Century of humiliation. Well, this is a big one. Um, the United States and Japan were, for lack of better words, enemies um even though they find themselves on the same side during world war one when they both enter uh it's awkward for them and a way to you know pardon my french to fuck with japan was to play footsie with china and the united states has always had commercial interests in china the open door policy started and the united states sees itself as kind of 
they want to say uh, the, the liberator and trying to make things equal, whereas they're, they're really trying to be the top dogs exploiting China. And to do that, they want to kind of kick Japan out. And during World War One, one of the first things that happens is Japan uh, sieges the German colonial possession of Tsingtao. Tsingtao how it's supposed to be pronounced. And uh, they inevitably end up having control of it for all of World War One, and this is going to extend until uh, 1922. And Shandong province, for that matter, Japan gets its little fingers in everything. They start buying up railroad networks. They start, you know, taxing Chinese citizens, which is a real, real messed up one. And they're pretty much taking over the area. And yeah. I can see how... China would not be happy with that, and particularly the people of China were outraged because it was uh, the hundredth time they've seen their government get trampled upon without really doing anything. So, in the episode, as I put it forward, everybody is looking forward to the moment China enters World War One, and they're all thinking to themselves, the United States said it to them, actually, quite frankly, you'll have a chance to go to the peace table and, you know, try to get something. Yep. And everyone in China was ecstatic. When World War I ended, there was a huge, there was like a celebration for a few days, food, everything was going out. People were ecstatic. And then they went to the delegation at Versailles, and the great powers completely laughed at them and didn't give them a single thing that they wanted. In fact, to humiliate them further, they had made promises with Japan so that Japan could keep Shandong province. And they ended up giving it to Shandong, uh, to Japan, and uh, it's actually something Britain did to a, quite a few countries during World War One. They promised everybody the same thing, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that, that's quite bad for China. Now let's talk a, a couple of minutes about how important the Shandong Province was back then to Japan, to China. Was it was it a big trade area? Was it a big railway central? What 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 was so big about the Shandong Province? So anything you're looking at in China on the East Coast is important because. Rule of thumb, the further west you go in China, the less developed, especially at this time period. To, to this day, it's it's kind of still the same situation. And every, every everybody wants to be on the coast, of course. So all the railroad networks, they actually kind of start off in this area and they go up to like Manchuria, etc. So it was important for railroads. It was also a port, uh, a port city. Mm -hmm. So they had Tsingtao. It's the base of the major rivers that go like closer to Beijing. Uh, it's near... Port, you know, what the Russians would have called Port Arthur, Danian, and that's an important, you know, place as well. The, um, yeah, we've talked about Port Arthur a lot in other episodes, but, you know, either way, I think we've gone through a lot about how port cities are key. Yes. Because if you if you control the flow of product in general, it doesn't matter what it is, if it's food, if it's goods, if it's minerals, if it if it's people, yeah. anytime you you control the 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 flow in and out, you control the money. And you can you can tax it any way you want. You can put quotas. You can stop it, start it. Uh, you're in control of everything. So, and uh, there was fear of encroachment by Japan much much further before in history, uh, starting with Manchuria, and also if you want to consider uh, the situation of Korea, Japan has basically called it. It is a colony of Japan's by this point. So when you're getting past 1910, Korea literally just becomes uh, it's, an it's annexed by Japan. So for the Chinese and the Chinese government, it's, it's terrifying. It really is Japan just slowly building this presence in the area and taking over. And that actually was what Japan was doing too. 
Yeah, well, we've talked about it again many times, uh, how this is the period where Japan was really starting to overtake China quite a bit. Big time, big time. As the big boy. I mean, China's completely fractured. They're in a warlord state. They don't have a unified government. It's uh, it's rough for them. Well, it, it's important to know this is the messy time. So the warlord era is only beginning right now. So when this is all happening, midway through kind of World War One and during the, the May 1919 19, uh, event, the May 4th event, mm-hmm. this is when the warlord era is actually really kicking off. Yep. So it, it, it's actually really, it's confusing to teach this in a lot of ways because there's so many different aspects. Like a lot of people, if you're learning about this in China, you know, you want to probably emphasize that this is a cultural revolution. Like this is a huge movement that's changing society for China. But inter, in international politics, in uh, geopolitics, it's like there's a situation where there's a shift paradigm where Japan is actually becoming really strong on the mainland of Eurasia now. Uh, Russia's receding and because it's the Bolshevik government now it's uh, you know it's a communist government and uh, the key players who have these parts of China are all busy with World War One and they can't really take care of their areas for example Britain still has Wei Highway at this point which is actually really close to Tsingtao it's uh it's a really messy time yep definitely not easy so let's get into the actual movement what uh, obviously China's not happy about what's going on U.S. kind of made a well. U.S. and the powers in general made a lot of promises, and then China showed up and more or less left empty-handed. But also, they were asked to sign treaties and you know go. How could we say this to to give in to certain demands, which we can say were pretty vastly unfair. Oh yes, so uh, it's already been said in my World War One episode, but the most probably the most important thing about World War One when it comes to uh, China and Japan is the infamous Twenty-One Demands. Yep. So Japan was being an opportunistic nation. They saw that the other great powers couldn't do anything at the time. They were too busy with the war in Europe. So Japan made these unbelievably and unrealistic demands of China, which would have basically made China, for lack of better words, a protectorate. Uh, like Puerto Rico is to the United States. Mm-hmm. Sorry to say this, Puerto Rico, it's kind of a similar situation. And, uh, well, China, they tried to resist. They managed to get some of the most egregious demands out of there, and it became the 13 demands, and Yuan Shikai ended up signing this before dying. And it's actually this guy who kind of single-handedly destroyed everything. So in his last two years of life, he... Sorry for my parents in the background. He grabs the presidency of uh, China. He decides that's not enough, and he elects himself as this emperor. Uh, he dies soon after, anyways. Uh, yeah, but by the way, did you know I'm the emperor of Canada now? Yeah, it's true. I decided that's okay, Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we'll, we'll we'll touch on that one. Later we'll talk too. about tyrants later. But uh, <clears throat> Yuan Shikai, the only way he was able to control, and he basically didn't have any control of the rest of China, was he uh, made military governors everywhere, so warlords, basically strongmen. Yep. And these guys had allegiance to him because he was a strong man himself. He had control of the Biang army. So he had the strongest army, so he was top dog. The second he dies, all those people he set up were like, well, I got a piece of my pizza, and I'm going to try and take everybody else's piece of the pizza, and they all were fighting each other. Yep. And that's what's going to happen. What began the warlord. Yeah. Yeah. Until 1928, this is what's going to occur. Until some of the top warlords end up winning. But uh, the people of China are dealing with this at the same time. So the 21 Demands has completely pissed them off. They now have the Shandong problem, as it's known, where Japan is encroaching upon their country, and then the Treaty of Versailles gives them nothing. They also find out that 
their government signed a private deal with Japan during World War I, uh, trying to get Shandong province back, but at a later date. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons why the great powers didn't take China seriously during uh, the peace conference, is because Japan literally took this piece of paper and said, China already signed this. This is Yuan Shikai who wrote here, blah, blah, blah. They're going to... Actually, it wasn't Yuan Shikai, sorry. It was his successor. My apologies. But... Um, they're, they gave us legitimacy over Shandong until a certain date, and they'll eventually give it back in 1922, though the rest of the great powers literally forced Japan, because Japan was not trying, they were not going to give it up. And it's a, content, it's a contention that goes on for a long time. And the Chinese people were outraged. And, uh, I mean, there was more going on, there was the Bolshevik Red Blood Revolution, there was like this whole wave of like literature getting into China and the Chinese were going overseas because World War One, a lot of the students went to Europe and they started to learn different ideologies and they brought it back home. Yeah, well still that big movement that we talked about in other episodes where China's kind of on that on that knife's edge between do we keep our traditionalist values, do we adopt a more western, yes. uh, more, a more westernized ideology you know, obviously some Western nations and some European nations had advanced a little bit farther in terms of industry, in terms of commerce, uh, things mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, they were deciding w w which side of the, which, which, which fork in the road they wanted to take, which is very, very tough for people to go through. And the, the crux of it and how this movement begins is it's a student movement. And like Justin said, they read a ton of literature such as Karl Marx, Engels and such, and uh, you know, they learned about capitalism, uh, any of the famous Western literature pieces you can think of, they read it and they were influenced by it and they said to themselves, well, China has been living by this like notion of Confucianism for a very long time and it's basically what the students were saying is it's run its course. We can no longer get past where we need to be to fully modernize in society. We need to adopt quote-unquote Western ideology, although there was much Eastern ideology too. It's just the way that it's always phrased is, oh yeah, they were looking at the West because Eurocentrism and that yeah, kind yeah. of crap always leaks into this. But um, a lot of, uh, you know, the current politicians and people in power were like, no, we want to do things status quo. And the students wouldn't have it. And uh, one of the big issues, I think I brought it up in this, and it was hard for me to understand, was the issue of the written language. So they wanted a vernacular language. And I'm still confused as to how this all works, but basically, from what I understood, the old uh, writing style was something that was kind of it, it. It was almost to my to my ears and to my eyes, it looks like it was Shakespearean the way they would used to speak. Okay. And it didn't work. It didn't match how people were actually speaking the language because the language had evolved over the, like thousand years, you know. And there was different dialects like Mandarin, Cantonese, like Hakka, all these different dialects. So a lot of the people couldn't understand how this was being written, and it just doesn't work with you know the way the language was. So they needed a new modernized version of the language. And that's a, a big thing. The students were they, they did get it did happen, and uh, thank God because I think it made everything much easier for them. And um, well, there's also uh, some famous people that kind of got involved, uh, such as I, I think I mentioned him one of one of the deans of literature at the University of Peking. I know a guy. He made a comment on the video, and I was wrong. I'll get I'll get into it in part two, but uh, he wrote some really influential magazines that talked about uh, the principles of Marxism, and this really ignited a lot of people's you know ideas of the world because they had never even heard such things as like the workers have rights and you know trying to seize the means of production and such. 
So the foundations of the CCP actually begin here. This is how it's founded. Yeah. So we have a bunch of angry students who decide to start protesting. Now, this is where we get into a little bit of a, I don't want to say a moral, I don't want to say a moral dilemma, but, you know, as protests tend to happen, things get a little bit out of hand. Yes, they did. Uh, they get very, they get very out of hand very quickly. We get to burning buildings and, you know. Yeah, they, they went after some, well, they would have called them the corrupt politicians. The guys who were dealing with the Japanese, uh, yeah. Japanese sympathizers, we'll call them political people. They uh, they burnt down some buildings and the students got out of hand. You know, mind you, it wasn't terribly bloody. There, I mean, there were fatalities. There technically were fatalities, if you want to argue it. But no, Technically, just, they killed some people, but it's not a big deal. I mean, it's just... Not many people died in this, but <laughs> a lot of students got beat up you, and a lot arrested. Yeah. Well, there were fatalities, mostly on the student side, but it's it's a classic thing, and it ties a lot into you know any kind of protests or things you see nowadays too. Whereas you have supposedly peaceful protesters, or mm -hmm. you assume they're peaceful protesters, but things get out of hand. They start, you know, if you're talking about modern days, they're flipping cars and they're lighting fires and they're breaking into private properties and things like that. And you know, this is a very similar thing. So then. What does any sensible government, town, or governing body decide to do? Well, police and military intervention. Yeah, of course. Because obviously civilians aren't going to handle these civilians who are getting unruly and out of hand. But then the situation just keeps escalating. And it's it's almost a who threw the first punch or who, who stepped out of line first. You know, obviously you, you never think casualties should happen in a protest. But, yeah, you also don't think buildings should end up on fire. Hey, guys. Uh, you know, it's funny. These people, they go to sleep. They think everything's fine, everything's good. They wake up the next day and they're on fire. G.I. Joe! But the uh, the most significant thing about all this was that while it began in May 4th, the, May 4th, the, the, the emergence of it was a student protest, it uh, got to the workers. Yep. And the working class was outraged by the fact, you know, the government went against the students. So the workers who were strongly emphasized by Marxism at this point, mm -hmm. they began to protest as well. Most of them were in Shanghai, but it was widespread around China. But everyone talks about the incidents in Shanghai, particularly of the business sector. That's why. And, and not uh, only did they back the students, but they started stacking their own demands on top of the, the chit, didn't they? It's just, for example, to, you know, make a modern comparison, that's ironic, uh, the trucker protests that we saw in Canada, we're both Canadians, while it initially was, you know, a, a few truckers who didn't, they chose not to get the vaccine, and the message was they didn't want to have the vaccine to go through the borders, it actually grew to this enormous thing with much, there was a lot of different reasons why people were involved in this, and, you know, it just goes to show you what was the initial cause and reason changed to just a blanket of all this sorts of stuff like it became like an yeah, anti yeah the, the end goal seems to get kind of blurred exactly. in these things yeah and uh, you know i, I don't want to say people are jumping on the bandwagon but they kind of are no pun intended considering a truck oh, freaking uh, yeah that's pretty funny but um <laughs> you know and again we're, we're not trying to get on either side of the moral debate either just just saying that it's you know, the, the end goals and what, what the movement is really about tends to get very murky in these situations, mm -hmm. especially when military in intervention and then actual fighting starts to break out. You know, then you get people who 
don't care about the original protest cause, but they're mad because other citizens are getting hurt for no reason. Yeah. And and it just snowballs into this giant fluster cluck of uh of an event. But again, this is an event that has very, very big impacts on modern day China, both culturally and uh, yes. politically. Uh, more importantly for today, for mainland mainland Chinese people, it's you know it's the foundation of the the found it's the finding of the CCP. So uh, Mao Zedong was actually part of this. So he was very young, uh, of course. He was greatly influenced by uh, the man who was uh, particular, in particular, the man that was the. Dean, uh, not of Peking University, but of a part of it, because this is a mistake I made in the episode, and I do apologize for that. It uh, turns out a lot of the sources I read got it wrong. So, my, my bad, I read them, and I finally found a Chinese source that set me straight. And uh, Mao Zedong was kind of like a fanboy, this guy, and he, he was the guy that wrote the magazine that was talking about Marxism. And Mao Zedong, eventually, he went back home, and he brought it to his own, like, you know, con congregation, we'll, we'll call it. He started to preach, and he got a lot of people on board. And, um, Interestingly, interesting enough, I didn't really know this uh, until I had to do the research now, that he strongly emphasized the role of women in all this and, you know, how they should be equal. Because part of this movement was the movement to have representation for women. Because, my God, before this movement, women had talk about no rights, like, for us in the Western world at that time. For China, it was ridiculous. It Even was, worse, yeah. Oh, it was incredible. And, uh, yeah, by the end of this uh, whole event, um, it's kind of overshadowed by the fact that they fall into the warlord period so the government is almost like a joke it has no control over anything except for kind of the area around beijing and all the warlords have firmly set themselves up in different pockets and there's now going to be people fighting for control over china but what's so important about the may 4th movement is it's the resurrection of the guomintang so the nationalists so um sun yat-sen mm -hmm. And it's the birth of the CCP. Uh, not yet under Mao Zedong, but they're coming up. He, he's growing in the ranks and yeah. slowly going to, you know, growing in popularity. But. Yeah. So it's kind of like the start of modern day China, basically, as mm -hmm. you can see it. And uh, for Taiwan as well. You can argue this is very important for the foundation of Taiwan. Because this is eventually going to lead to Chiang Kai-shek's rise to power. The civil war and then the, well exile onto the island i guess you would say yeah now considering that china is going into a warlord era and it's obviously very broken up in section the rise of the ccp and these new ideologies I, i'm guessing it was still mostly centralized in certain regions and there were probably still a lot of other regions that were opposed to it or oh it, it gets so confusing you have like uh, independence in tibet you got this sector that's in manchuria that's its own thing, we'll call it. Uh, in Beijing, it's this Biang government that's always there, but doesn't really have do any anything. authority. Like okay. it's kind of, it's really embarrassing how little authority they have. In Guangzhou, like in the south parts of China, that's where the KMT, that's the Kuomintang, are going to be setting up shop. The CCP is really, really small at the beginning, and they got pockets, and uh, they, they, going further in the future. They'll join up with the KMT called it's called the United Front, the first United Front. Yeah, and uh, they'll screw each other over. There'll be really bad blood. They'll attack each other, and then eventually, when World War II happens, there's a second United Front, and blah 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 blah. Where there's a civil war, but uh, it's basically it's getting into the messiest part of Chinese history, and it, it's incredible. Even people who specialize this, it's very difficult to explain because you you have big warlords, and then you got small warlords, and then you got peoples that 
don't even consider themselves to be Chinese at all. Like you could argue well, the Tibet. I know this is to this day very, you don't want to talk about this with uh, mainland China. And uh, yeah, it's quite a lot of fun. Wow. Definitely a tumultuous period, but... Um... Yeah. And uh, I have to say now, I just completely forgot, didn't say this at the beginning of the episode, but uh, over the course of a few days, I crossed 10,000 subscribers. That's so. true. <laughs> I should we have said that at the beginning of the episode. Case. Thank you to everybody cheers, who subscribed. Cheers. Yes. Definitely cheers. Thank you to listening to two drunk Canadians who sort of know what they're talking about. Yeah, and uh, days. to... <laughs> with no background in Asian history. Like, I, I mean, yeah, for me, for Japan, I'm learning Chinese history currently. And, uh, well, on Kings and Generals, the channel I write for on the side, you'll see I'll be doing a lot more when it comes to uh, history of China, as well as more podcast stuff, and God knows what else. I mean, if anyone watches Wizards and Warriors, I just did the Obi-Wan series, and I'm the guy who writes a lot of Lord of the Rings stuff. So I'm, I'm a man of many trades. Yeah. You know? And uh, we, we haven't set an exact plan yet, but we do want to do a video as a yeah, 10K God. sub special. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So uh, leave in the comments what you guys would like us to do. Do you want us to cover a specific topic? Do you want us to do a cosplay? Do you want us to go out and do something? I, I don't know. I can't promise we're going to do it, but leave some comments of what you guys would want to see, and we'll see if we can maybe make something happen for our official 10K uh, I'll say it here because everybody struck me down that I said this too. I said I should use this katana to cut watermelons in the backyard like an idiot. And I still think it's a good idea. Whatever. That's my... I, I want to go on record to say I was one of the ones that said that was a stupid idea. But it's, uh, you know, we're, we're here because of you guys. Obviously, at least 10,000 of you somewhat like our content or hate it enough to subscribe so you can shit talk us on a weekly basis. I, I Honestly, but... I haven't been getting a lot of hate comments for quite a while now. I'm very surprised. What, ever since you got called a Bolshevik carpetbagger? Because that one was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed that one. Oh, boy. Um, on, yeah, Reddit, people... on Reddit, they're, they're quite special and racist. Uh, but, you know, Reddit is Reddit. This is true. But, uh, no, either way, anybody who's involved, we appreciate it. And... Uh, Again, we're, we're here for you guys. Uh, we're, we're trying to put some stuff out as fast as possible, but obviously with KNG and all this other stuff, yeah. it's a very busy time. I, 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 I say it probably every episode. Yeah, it, the, the reason why these episodes come out very sporadically and slow is because I do so much work with KNG that I, I simply can't keep up. And I do have a day job, so it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I do my best. But by all means, check them out too, KNG. If you're not subscribed mm -hmm. to them or don't follow them, very good channel. Craig does a lot of work in script writing for them um yeah so and uh, i think it's a good time to kind of pitch into part two which is honestly the meat to why anyone is watching this it's kind of like what didn't make the episode and you know it also answers a lot of the comments too because a lot of people are like oh why don't you talk about this because it's a 14 minute episode basically uh the first thing that i want to talk about is a little bit about kind of the ccp let me look at my notes because it's been a long time since i wrote this episode so the most obvious thing that didn't make the cut was mostly episodes outside of the scope of the new culture movement, the May 4th movement. Obviously, these events were, you know, the larger ongoing issues, like the performance of China during World War One, and the rise of Western knowledge by Chinese youth, leading to the new ideologies. I just say, oh, there's these new ideologies. I didn't really go into it. And how the CCP was formed, I, I kind of just gave a really small summary, and that was intentional, because it goes into the warlord era, and I'm going to be doing, like, a big series on that so i'll be talking about in the future 
Uh, probably a three-part series. I'm not too sure yet, but I, in my head, imagine it'll be a three-part series if I can fit it in. Yeah. And... Um, oh, here. To uh, I didn't get to really emphasize the change, uh, like I was talking about before, in the vernacular language. Uh, I think it's pronounced Wahwai, which was uh, an enormous move forward. I don't speak any of the Chinese languages, so I don't think I can. I didn't think I could do it much justice even now. I'm sorry for my parrot. Recording with the parrot awake, and she is cranky. But to explain uh, to the audience, classical Chinese was a traditional style of written Chinese that goes back to the fifth century BC, all the way to the end of the Han Dynasty in the third century AD. So this language was used all the way up to the twentieth century and it didn't mirror modern Chinese languages that it evolved since then. So actually in the episode like we were just talking before, I kind of explained it a bit. It's the easiest way to say. The basic way to look at it is classical Chinese. The written one was like frozen in time. So it was being used for all literacy, but the spoken language had evolved into all different kind of dialects and that, so they just didn't meet up. And it's really jarring for everyone, and it was a problem for students, and it hindered education, uh, literacy in general, and progress for that matter. Uh, let's see what else didn't make it. I didn't, oh god, I don't think I want to talk about this one. I didn't hint at how uh, mainland Chinese and Taiwanese people see this event very differently. And, you know, it's just because it's a bit awkward. So it's, it's the founding of two countries uh, that have their differences. And uh, you can see it much in the same ways as it's the resurrection of the KMT and it's the birth of the CCP, this movement. Uh, the last one that I really felt I had dropped the ball was that this was a feminist movement and I barely talked about it. A lot of the clips I use show, um, I don't know if it's a T, I think it was a TV series that I found that was the viewpoints of how the, the female students like led this movement and everything. But uh, honestly, I could have made a whole other episode on the feminist movement aspect of this. And um, I, I couldn't fit it in. It's, uh, it is what it is. But uh, there's a lot of important things that women were fighting for during this. Uh, it was impossible at this point for women to get an education. So they wanted to get educated. And they wanted to get educated alongside their male peers because everything was uh, segregated at that time. Uh, marriage was prearranged and women had no choice in the matter. So that was a, a big one they were fighting for, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. And um, after the May 4th movement, it allowed women to enter, you know, new parts of the workforce because they were barred from all sorts of different jobs. You know, that's it was kind of like this for the Western world, for that matter, at that time. And uh, they could get educated and they could get some property rights. Not fully, though. They would still have to struggle. Well, I mean, from a modern day perspective, that doesn't sound like a, a ton. But for back then, that's leaps and bounds uh, from where they were, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, for the third part, I wanted to kind of look at some comments and questions uh, from the audience. Yeah, we did have a few. And, uh, oh, I don't know if I should say their I won't say the names. I, I, I do have them written down here for once, but I shouldn't. Just to keep them anonymous. Although I guess anyone could just click the video and find out. Just say their names, for God's sake. If you uh, didn't someone, want your name known, don't leave a comment. Someone Sorry. named Brian M. John. Uh, Kie was, well, that's not how you pronounce that, Kiri, I think, had also signed the Nishihara loans, which protected Japanese interests in Shandong. 
This was part of what went wrong for China during the Versailles peace talks. So what this guy is bringing up is as part of the back order deals between China and Japan, uh, this was the loan aspect of it. So what Japan was doing was Japan was currently loaning money to China to help their modernization process. And they were blackmailing them during the Shandong problem crisis to say, like, we will stop loaning you this money if you don't let us do certain things. And that was like uh, having units in Manchuria and keeping Shandong for longer. And uh, ironically enough, the guy that he's talking about, he becomes a warlord of the Anhui clique. And uh, he signs off on a bunch of other loans to Japan. And he receives assistance uh, in order to receive military aid. So he was building himself up as a warlord during this process, and Japan ends up kind of backing him, quasi-like. And uh, in order to uh, in, in order to do that, Japan receives you know confirmation of its claims over the Shandong province, including the railways, additional rights in Manchuria. And uh, when I do the three-part series in the Warlord era, I'll go more into this character and basically why Japan was backing him a bit. So this is almost like Japan's insurance, just a, in, you know, a backdoor insurance policy just to make sure they can try to hold on to the Shandong province, even after this uh, yep. supposed rental term was up. Exactly. And this guy has a pretty safe name, User123. I wonder yeah. if you made that account on the spot. Uh, he said, the May 4th movement is also directly inspired, and he mispronounces this, he's directly inspired the Cultural Revolution 40 years later. They had almost identical messages. A lot of people in the West simply don't understand that for a long time, a good majority of Chinese people think traditional culture and Chinese is backwards and needed to be discarded because for a very long time, China was weak because of its traditions. And uh, obviously, he uh, English was probably his second language. No, he's most likely a Google Translate, but... He's basically kind of like explaining... What I, I try and touch upon in the episode is why the students and a lot of people in China saw the need to throw away like the old traditions and Confucianism and that it just didn't it didn't work in the new modern age it, it really was jarring like there was a lot of odd custom not odd uh, there was a lot of customs involved in Confucianism that just didn't work in modern society and yeah <laughs> it was pretty pretty weird and uh, what did uh, what did, do I have any more information on this uh, traditional culture holding back is pretty it was alien to western thinking and uh, it continuously looked back fondly on you know the old days and after being abused during the centuries of humiliation uh, Chinese society notably the youth were simply trying to rationalize what was occurring to their nation so they're kind of looking for a scapegoat as to why all these bad things were happening to them right looking for somebody to put the blame on yeah and, uh, well, they got their way with the cultural movement. Yep. The next comment was just, a, it's Gebrekadijic. It's some kind of, like, guy who just wrote a bunch of letters. Uh, he said, pretty good video, concise, informative. The use of memes is okay, but I would suggest you hold back on the use of video and sound memes, as it is it somewhat ruins the pace for me and makes it harder to follow. The longer they are, the more they distract the flow of the story, especially if it doesn't add anything informative. Yeah, um, I, I was testing a lot of grounds with this video. As anyone who's seen my work probably <laughs> could tell, I, I really went hard on the comedy on this one. And 
Uh, I know so I, I can already see some things that worked and some things that didn't work and I, I assure you I will fine-tune it but I, I really do hope to make it kind of more funny and uh, entertaining even though a lot of these topics are morbid as hell uh, but uh, try I, to liven it up a little yeah, bit I definitely went off the rocker on this one I mean I really put a lot of memes and stupid silliness in it so what I, happens when you're sleep deprived in editing videos yeah I probably look terrible right now I have been working since 5 a.m. today uh, this it one is, is now 6 a.m. today. Sure. <laughs> this one is from Hino the Third. Good video, but I would advise to tone down the amount of memes you use. They hurt the pace of the video. So just like the second guy, you know. Uh, this guy commented, Blashibo Eater. Star Wars was wild during World War II. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna have to acknowledge I, I put this out on May the 4th. Duh. You know, of course I'm of course I'm going to put out May the 4th. This is really convenient. And did I put some of the keywords, you know, may the fourth be with you? Well, yeah. I did what I did. And you know what? The analytics were really good for this. And people, I could see that the average view time was pretty good too. So people watched. Maybe I got some people who don't know anything about Chinese history interested in Chinese history. So there. God forbid anyone on YouTube clickbait somebody, right? Yeah, seriously. Meek Kim said, I can already hear you guys being banned in China. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, to be straight up with everybody, it, uh, I check my analytics all the time, and um, mainland, Chinese, mainland China doesn't even come up. Like, uh, I, I get a few Taiwanese viewers. I get a lot of Filipinos and uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of Indians. But uh, it's not really possible to, to gauge people who are in China for uh, outside of China. Sure, there's probably many, but um, you have to go on Yuku to really get the Chinese people to watch. That's like their YouTube. You, on YouTube, it's tricky to, to get mainland Chinese to watch your stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to be able to get that as much as I try. Next one, Kudilo. What is the name of the movie? Okay, so uh, the main movie that I used for a lot of the clips was... Uh, God, I don't remember. Uh, I'll go to my notes. Here it is. The Beginning of the Great Revival from 2011. Yes, uh, it's actually surprisingly a, a good, accurate uh, view of the events. Because usually uh, historic films are terrible. And I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. A lot of Chinese historic films really blemish a lot of things. This one was pretty good. Uh, it handfully emphasized Mao Zedong a little bit too much in in my opinion, because he's not one of the main guys that's forming the CCP at this time. And I, I, I mean, I, I know why they had to highlight him, you know, because he's such a huge figure and everything, but uh, they probably could have given more into other people. And uh, yeah, that's the name of that movie. I always get a question about what is the movie or the series I use every single video. So people are always interested. I do a lot to try and like find good cinematic representations of this. If there isn't combat footage, if it's like a combat footage thing. In the future, we should try and pin it in the video description so people. Uh... Well, it's at the end. Uh, it's it's in the um, bibliography. We'll call it the end. So it's there, but no one watches that part. <laughs> Uh, didn't stay for the credits, guys. Marvel has taught you nothing. Uh, and last but not least, I think I've said it three times. There was a guy that corrected me. I was wrong. Um, this guy was on Reddit. Uh, Chen Zixu. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Google Translate is what has been helping me with the pronunciations for a lot of the names. Uh, he was not the dean of Peking University. He was the dean of the School of Letters at Peking University in 1917. 
Uh, my bad. Uh, the sources Basically I used... Basically head of a department. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the, the sources that I were, was using, which, funny enough, were academic papers, a lot of them. It wasn't books, for, for, for the most part. They made this error, too. So, yeah. Whoever, if you're watching this right now, start shouting it more. So a lot of people made this mistake. <laughs> and uh, can't all be perfect, and certainly... Uh, uh, I'm learning Chinese history as I go, and you know I specialize more in Japanese history, so I learn something every day. Yeah, we do make mistakes, like we said. We're uh, we're always open to comments, questions, suggestions, but uh, you know we do the best we can to kind of make the topic uh, understandable for the generic viewer, especially since I'm not a history guy either, so mm. we need to dumb it down for me. But uh, you know we kind of try to appease everybody with these things, so yeah, we do our best. Now, well, I guess to talk a bit about the future of the channel. So I've already said it a few times. Probably a three-part series in the Warlord era. Though I always get distracted by something, whether it's someone asking for a special piece. Uh, for, for example, uh, there's a lot of people asking for something on um, Korea. And my video uh, from a while back on the Project Ukraine it was half of that. So while it was a video talking about the history of Ukraine uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution onwards and the uh, Ukrainization versus Stalin suppressing it, uh, it was also a piece on kind of like the end of the 19th century uh, Korea and how they went through the annexation process of Japan. So I managed to hit that. Uh, I still have to do a piece on uh, the Philippines. I know uh, I need to do a piece on India. Uh, a lot of places. We did Southeast Asia uh, for World War One because I got a lot of people that, well, particularly Vietnamese that wanted some pieces. Although the Vietnamese were screaming for the Franco-Viet War, and I could still go back and do something on that. But uh, for the most part, uh, we're looking at the Warlord era for a three-part series. And then after that, it's going to get interesting. It'll go to Japan for a while. Most likely, I'll have to do a few episodes on the political assassinations that go on in Japan in the 30s. Uh, what happens in the 20s, because uh, Japan changes quite a bit. Uh, and then the early emergence of Japan invading China. So in 1931, and then I'm going to follow it probably at a year-by-year -year rate, because it gets nitty-gritty at that point. That's where the meat is going to be until the war starts. And then when the war starts, this whole channel is going to change uh, format, I think, completely. Because I'm going to have to really figure out a good way to tackle this with event by event. Not week by week like the KNG is doing, because that's insanely difficult. Yeah. That's... And they're already doing it. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. I think we covered just about everything. Yeah, as always, again, if there's something else we missed in the episode or something related to this that you guys want us to talk about or have any questions, leave us the good old comment. We we try to at least read them all. We can't always respond, but, uh, you know, we do our best. We're, we're here for you guys, so whatever you want to see, try and, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll make an effort to make it happen. And let us know. 10K special if you guys want to see something specific. Oh, yeah. We're, we're open to suggestions because we still got to address that. Thank you guys again for 10K subs. That's incredible. And as always, please let me know what you want to see. Because as you know, in the new kind of podcast format, we tackle any question. I'm not going in a chronological order like these episodes are. So if you want to hear about something obscure, maybe you want an episode on, I don't know, Unit 731 or something. So I can get banned on YouTube. I can do that. Uh, 
we'll have an episode coming out by the time this premieres it'll be out so i can say this uh it's on why is uh the war in europe for world war ii more popular than the pacific war with uh, my friend ian so that was a question that someone from kng had asked uh there's many from kng but please on youtube leave a comment uh might become an episode yep thank you guys i'll see you next time cheers guys Hey, and don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button so I can feed my two feathery co-hosts.